All right, everybody, welcome back to the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast, episode four. Uh, first and most importantly, I want to do a quick shout out to perhaps our only self-described fan who had sent us an email to podcast at thecreinsider.com. I'm going to read exactly what he said um, so I get this right. He said, wow, I didn't think it was possible to talk about these subjects without falling asleep, but you may have proved me wrong. Truly, there is no compliment that I think the four of us needed more. I also respect that you added in, you may have proved me wrong uh, to this uh, one fan. I recommend that you continue to reserve judgment till the end of this episode. Today, we are going to be talking about uh, major real estate headlines over the last two weeks. And then we also will be talking about a much more technical creative deal structuring of leases and purchase transactions for companies. Uh, definitely going to be one of the more detailed and technical episodes that we've had to date. Uh, and we hope that you enjoy, hope that you learned something new. Um, again, if you have anything that you want to share with us, any topics you want us to cover in the future, any questions, any feedback, any jokes that you want to send us like this one person, any compliments, you can email us at podcast at com. So with that, um, let's get going. And Owen, I know you have a new story you wanted to kick us off with. So I'll let you take it from here. The What's going on in the world today just kind of fascinates me because we get a lot of clickbait you know, media out there talking about a recession. And then, you know, we've got interest rates that are still kind of going up, but albeit slowly. And it's I think about this in the context of like our clients, right? Like and the Labor Department reported that, you know, non-farm payrolls grew by a half a million jobs in January, with which is a year-over-year -year growth rate of like 4.4%. Um, it was triple Wall Street's expect expectations and the strongest growth for the first month of the year since 1946. And that's all great. I love the fact that people are employed, but as someone who represents tenants hearing all the time that they're still kind of in a war for talent, it just gives me pause to be a little bit concerned about um, you know our inflation rate and the Fed not acting aggressively enough. Because I think like the worst thing that could happen is we go in for this, you know, quote unquote, soft landing um, and we bounce along for the next two years at five or six percent inflation. And I think what needs to happen to get back to two percent, which is our target, is that we we have to keep um, you know raising rates until we you know get there. And that might be a little bit of a hurt. Right. Like it might be a little painful for some. And I'm not wishing pain on anybody, but I just find it interesting that, you know, anyone that shorted the market in December. Um, expecting this big recession come the first year was horribly wrong um, and lost a lot of money. Um, and so I just I just find it interesting. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that, on what's going on and what the Fed might do the balance of the year. I think it's really interesting what what's happening in particular. I mean, so many people were shocked by the jobs numbers that came down. And uh, to some extent, I feel like we're, we're sort of living in the society where so many people get their news from just one news source. And if you get your news from the you know mainstream media uh it it really is heavily focused on tech right like you you cannot read a major newspaper without twitter lays off x number of people or google lays off this number of people and um i, I actually was thinking about this and having a conversation with a friend earlier this week that i feel like we live in this tech echo chamber where whatever hap is happening in tech people think is happening with the economy in general and that's just absolutely not true so if you work at a tech company and you have a roommate or two or three or your friend group, and you all work at a combination of, you know, Alphabet, Meta, and Netflix, and six other companies that are tech, 
you might have had two or three people that have been employed your entire adult life that are now unemployed and to be sitting there going, oh my gosh, this is just a brutal job market, yet we have the lowest unemployment rate in 53 years. So I think it's just important to um, think about this contextually uh, in the perspective of the entire economy instead of just tech. So um, that that's point number one. Point number two is that we just, we are in this giant whipsaw of an economy, right? I mean, the jobs news coming out should be just amazing for the performance of public equities, right? Yet this type of news comes out and the immediate reaction is, well, the jobs numbers are so good that the Fed is probably going to be more aggressive on interest rates. And that's going to be way worse for the economy than the benefit of the extremely low unemployment rate. So it's like all these unintended consequences of a, a given news cycle is <laughs> somehow the jobs report being the highest it ever is, is probably some of the worst news that you could possibly have for real estate owners, because it means interest rates are likely to stay higher for longer. Totally agree. And one other just quick anecdote about the jobs market, according to the Labor Department, there are two available jobs right now, non-farm, of course, for every one available U.S. worker. I mean, and if you read the clickbait and all the news on tech and layoffs, you'd think that would, you wouldn't they would never think about that. But that's the reality is that there's two jobs for every available worker right now. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting. Sorry, John. It's interesting. Literally just now, I got an update from the journal that says the hottest hiring, the highest, the hottest markets for tech jobs are thousands of miles away from San Francisco in D.C. and New York. There are more jobs for tech workers at non-technology companies on the market today in, in D.C. and New York and probably a lot of other cities. Let me try and bring it back to real estate. It's not really a uh, news story, but it relates to the office market where that's one sector. I think we can all agree there's some softness coming in this uh, increasing vacancy. What is it? The sublease availability across the country has more than doubled since 2019, now at around 250 million square feet. Massive uh, signs of softness in the office market. And Owen, I wanted to throw back to you to share. I heard you tell a story this morning, and I think it'd be worth sharing here with the podcast group, The that, that happened to another broker at a, another firm in your market that I think is really telling about what's happening in that space today. Yeah, it's, there was a transaction. It's widely known now, but news broke last week that there's a law firm in Seattle that was negotiating a lease at a building not far from where I'm sitting right now. Um, lease got fully negotiated, tenant signed the lease, went to the landlord's desk, a couple of weeks passed by, no word from the landlord, no signed lease, fully executed lease, I should say. And the tenant got an unfortunate phone call or his, or their broker did rather, um, that the landlord's lender was not going to approve the lease. Uh, the loan covenants were such that the deal was too aggressive, meaning too cheap uh, for the lender to approve it and the deal died. Uh, and then the tenants back out on the street trying to find a, a new home. Um, so that's a reality we have not seen in Seattle uh, in 20 plus years. Um, but I think we're going to see more of that as we move through this this year, especially with the, the lower quality buildings that aren't benefiting from the flight to quality that's going on. Okay. One of the news stories that I want to talk about is specifically related to Tesla's announcement of their $3.6 billion investment into Nevada, which is focused on building um, Tesla trucks. Um, and these are semi trucks, not not cyber truck. And well, that is newsworthy and interesting and um, worthy of discussion. What I really want to talk about and ask you all about is whenever I read one of these headlines about these massive manufacturing companies that 
is out there doing a build a suit that's going to take three, four years to build. I think what about all of the companies that don't have the luxury of being able to spend billions of dollars and wait three or four years to build the factory? Like, what do you do if you're a company that needs to start manufacturing later this year and you don't have a multi-billion dollar budget? You know, Owen, I know that you work with a number of these uh, fusion reactor companies that have very specialized real estate needs. Brian, I know that you work with all types of different companies in the clean energy, semiconductor space. John, I know that you have clients across all those different verticals and also life sciences um, and like pharmaceutical manufacturing. How would you all approach that if you don't have the luxury of being Tesla, where you can plan on a decade long basis instead of, you know, a year long basis, like many of the smaller companies that uh, all of us have the opportunity to work with? I know what I'd do. I'd hire Tucker Hughes. <laughs> He'd get it done. I, I think the answer, Tucker, is we're having, personally, having very challenging conversations with our clients about timelines for all different sectors right now. There's, there is a disconnect between the realities of executing a good real estate transaction, even if you have to pay a premium, uh, and what companies need to be up operational and, pro and providing their product to the marketplace. There's a massive disconnect. We've got, I've got projects going on that it could be anywhere from six months to two years of a disconnect. And what, what I, what I have been telling them, I was just on the phone with a clean tech company last week, and this is what I told them. They, now look, now this set the table. They have a national uh, consulting company doing site selection for them around the country. They've raised billions of dollars. They're engaged with a policy team in D.C. What they don't have is an on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground team identifying sites once they get to a particular labor market or a particular state for incentives. They don't have boots-on-the-ground understanding the challenges of the particular sites within that marketplace, laying out timelines, and helping them determine long lead time items from a construction and phase-in perspective. Power, HVAC equipment, steel, all of the components that that that, that piece of their of their master uh, timeline of the overall process from getting incentives to producing product, they're missing that execution phase. So what, we're, what I'm telling them is, look, let's get it. And it's early to be doing it because they don't know how much funding they're going to get. There's still a lot of variables on the table. Where are they going to go? Let's create a timeline. Let's create a process. Let's get into the marketplace. And if we have to take it, put it out on the shelf for 12 months, at least you know that the second you say go, it's 24 months before you can actually be starting to build product in your factory or build the machines to build product, depending upon how we do it, right? If we do a built to suit, all you're going to be doing in 24 months is likely building the machines that build your product. If we find an existing building, it's probably building product in 24 months because you're going to have, you know, you're going to have 12 months of, of timeline and then 12 months to build the product that builds your product, which is all assembled and created on site. So I, I would say the, the answer is start the process really early and be aware of your timelines because they're much longer than they've been in my entire career and longer than a lot of people believe, uh, believe they are just sitting back at their desk today. I've got an idea for you, Tucker. So, you know, the idea of spending all that time and all that money to build a specialized facility is just brutal. And for the companies that either don't have the time or the money, uh, consider relaxing your geographic search parameters and go try and find, Brian mentioned, an existing building, something with 
some of the infrastructure, some of the, you know, convert a wafer fab for a CGMP life science manufacturing. Like at least it has the power infrastructure, mechanical infrastructure, but search more broadly to try and find a little bit closer to an existing building and avoid spending all that capital for brand new, highly specialized. Yeah, one one company that I know of uh, has a very specialized power use. And they, to your exact point, John, they, they brought a team in and they said, okay, find me every building in the country that provides this square footage because this is how our machines lay out at critical mass. We need 150,000 square feet with this much power. They found five facilities across the country that were vacant that they could get get control of. And they leased all five of them because that the, the, the lead time to get the power up and running, if you need to go to the, you know, if you have to go to the municipality or you have to go to the energy company, you have to go to the Department of Energy, depending upon the size of the product uh, project, is years, could be years. So they just went and they leased all five of them at the same time. So like those, those are strategies that you, that you can look at if you have a team in place to help you execute. Okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's get started on creative deal structuring. Brian, I know that you wanted to lead us off with a special story. Let's hear it. You, you know, if you guys ever seen the movie Miracle, there's a part when Herb Brooks is given a speech and he says, you were born to be hockey players. We were, I was born to tell this story right now. Um, <laughs> the, uh, no, I think, I think now is the time that this marketplace, this, um, the challenges that every company is facing is really setting apart the 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 quality of the advice and the and the teams and the and the people that are working with some of the largest companies in the world and and I think I wouldn't exactly call it creative I would just call it um, you know an informed deal structuring so you know one of the things that we're doing proactively with our clients is really taking a look at a look at their portfolio their use. And how are they? How are they coming back to the office? Are there opportunities to reduce costs? And what we're doing is saying, okay, look, if we're going to come back in a lower clip, can we can we be more efficient? Can we downsize our space? And if we can, is our lease up in the next two to four years? And and when those answers are yes, we're starting to really look at opportunities to give back space, extend leases, but to do it in a way. Um, that reduces the 2023 P&L expense for that company by restructuring the whole lease. If you can get capital um, from the landlords that reduces rent expense to help with the reduction of P&L expense, if you can get rent relief for the piece of space that you're giving up and help put that into the, the bucket and reduce your P&L expense, I just think right now is a good time for, for really uh, proactive smart brokers that understand how companies, any company that reports under GAAP, how they look at real estate and start to advise them on opportunities to reduce 2023 costs on their P&Ls and be able to um, really have make a difference in, in your, your clients or your company's um, cost structure immediately. The key, the key is, I think, the key for for our clients is to start to understand you need your you need your the companies to start to make decisions on we're coming back three days a week we don't need all this space right so then you start to say okay well can we do we need to do we need to move and if if 
if you need to move to be able to re redo your space or or to create a new image for the company, it gets really challenging because you have this tail of existing space. But if you can live with where you are, right? So you, if you if you kind of play that back to companies desire not to not to spend capital. So what does that mean in real estate? It means a lot of renewals. It means you're not going to go and build space because remember capital sits on on one side of the the ledger rent expense sits on another so and even if a landlord is going to give you the full cost so they give you $250 to build space and it costs you $250 it still doesn't offset each other one is still capital and one of them reduces rent expense so companies that don't want to flex their capital budgets are focused on renewing their space and if you could do that and your clients are going to stay where they are there's a real opportunity right now to get more efficient and to reduce cost in 2023 on leases that may not expire for two, three, four years. I got a similar story, but just so our listeners can understand this applies to more than just, hey, let's renew our lease. Um, I've got a client that um, engaged us to help with their real estate after having tried to subleasing it for nine months with no success. Um, and that was with a different firm. Um, so they, I was referred into the, into the company, we had a meeting and they expressed their frustration about not being able to sublease their space. I suggested, well, you're right. It's a tough market to be a sublessor. Have you approached the landlord about maybe an early restructure lease where they recapture a portion of your space today in exchange for renewing the lease, in addition to getting some concessions to re-tenant uh, re their space with new finishes and so forth. So that was a transaction that came to fruition, closed, clients thrilled, because now they no longer have to be a sublessor and deal with subleasing space, but they were able to basically extinguish their lease on that particular floor. And then in exchange for renewing their lease um, on the floors they continue to occupy. So that's number one. The second one that I want to bring up is that I had a client um, in the Midwest who had a lease termination provision in their lease. And they hadn't even thought of trying to sub or to terminate the lease because the payment was pretty significant. Um, but this particular market they're in, this metropolitan market, has a tremendous amount of availability and there's a lot of landlords chasing deals. They're chasing credit and term. And so I calculated what the termination fee might be and asked them, what if I could get a landlord as part of getting you to move to their building, pay your termination fee? And it was a, it was a significant check. Um, and they said, well, that'd be, that sounds fantastic. So we went to the market, met with a bunch of different landlords, um, some of which were very eager, some which weren't. Um, it just so happened that one of the ones that was eager to do something um, we engaged with and the deal's not completely done yet, but they're offering to pay the entire termination fee so they can get out of our lease in exchange for moving to their building on a longer term commitment. Um, clients thrilled because the building they were in is a building they don't want to go back to. The building they're moving to is one they believe they can get their, excite their employees to come back, even though they're going to be back four days a week, not five. Um, so another example of not just looking at the obvious, which is, hey, that's a big check. I don't want to write that check to terminate my lease or, oh, my only option is a sublease to get rid of space. I think the best brokers are those that are get creative and look for opportunities when there isn't one staring you in the face, so to speak. Okay, let's see if this works. I've been sketching. I want to introduce you to the, uh, what do I call it? My lease box savings model. Um, one of my favorite opportunities is when we can renegotiate early and in fact, let's just tear up the existing lease, maybe a year or two years before the end of the current lease. 
when the market conditions, the market turns soft, everyone acknowledges that. So here's what we get. You know, you got this lease over time. You could wait to the end of the lease, move out and go find a cheaper space. But guess what? If we can tear up the lease and start over early, then we save the money that's represented in this box. And the only person that can do that is your current landlord. It's one of my favorite transaction structures. It only works in a soft market with the landlord acknowledging and we can drive the leverage. But to tear up a lease and just forget those last year or two years, they're usually above market anyway. Anyway, tear up the current lease and save that money in the box. Yeah, and, and with the market as depressed as it is, a lot of times it gets challenging if companies are reporting on a gap basis to do that because they're straight line their rent. So even on the P&L, the, the last two years of rent is lower than market, right? So it gets, you're actually even, even though on a cash basis, you're paying less money on the P&L, you're paying higher. But we've had such a reset in the cost in many of these markets or you can at least you know on the surface they're not reset yet but you can drive to a significant value in a lot of assets and reset that number low enough that you will have a PL savings as well even at the same amount of space the real value comes if you can get more efficient you know if you're if your um, your headcounts decreased significantly enough to be able to take less space where a landlord's still still looking for term you have that savings box jump grows significantly. So one of the things that I have saved clients, I ran the calculation before we hopped on this podcast so I could say this, but I've used this one very specific strategy to save my clients over $80 million now. And it's a very specific circumstance within the um, domain of beneficial occupancy. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with what that is, beneficial occupancy is basically free use or beneficial use of the space before the lease actually commences or before you start paying rent. And um, there's a specific scenario that um, a, a majority of large companies will encounter over time. And whenever you're moving into a new facility of size where there's significant landlord work and you're doing a tenant build, this opportunity will exist. And essentially what the opportunity is, is that instead of saying, hey, the landlord is going to turn over this space on X date, you say, I need you to turn over the project in phases. Um, what's the earliest you can finish phase one? What's the earliest you can finish phase two? And so on and so forth. And sometimes there might be four or five phases. Just keep in mind, it's very hard for construction crews to build 500,000 square feet at once. I mean, typically they're building 50,000, 100,000 square feet. Then they move to the next 50,000, 100,000 square feet. So these large campuses, certain portions of them should have come online at different times than the other. And if you go to a landlord and negotiate the ability to have beneficial occupancy on phases as they complete, and then have the commencement date triggered on the actual commencement date of the entire campus, then you have the ability potentially to use the vast majority of the project for a, a, a large portion of time before the lease actually commences. Um, in one instance, um, because our, cli our client had very quick timing, we actually um, got a date from the landlord that we knew was completely inaccurate. We knew that there was no way that they were going to be able to execute on the timeline that they had proposed. And we had financially modeled to our client ending up getting multiple months of beneficial occupancy above what the landlord thought that they were providing. And essentially in this scenario, our client had about 100,000 square feet of the campus that was fully operational, fully being used, you know, hundreds of, of people working, you know, out of this facility. And the final phase of the building, what was what triggered the final delivery date of the of the campus. And after the final delivery date, there was another 240 days 
before that lease actually commenced. So we ended up getting um, at, at the end almost a full year of beneficial occupancy on about 70% of the square footage that we leased. And it's uh, it's something that's, that's fairly easy to negotiate because it aligns both the parties. You can tell a landlord like, hey, look, I'm not comfortable with not having a very severe penalty for your failure to deliver the final phase of the project. Without the final phase of the project, we would never be leasing this building. We shouldn't have our clock start until everything's been delivered. Um, and I've been successful in doing this on literally dozens of projects. It's very rare that landlords put up a major fight and it puts you in a position to potentially secure millions or tens of millions of dollars of beneficial occupancy. I think it's a, it's a great, it's a, it, it's a brilliant strategy. I mean, you're, you're leveraging, you're leveraging your tenants value to create, to create all the savings up front. I mean, um, the other, the other piece of that, and I'm not sure if you've looked at it this way, but one of the a similar strategy, but for a different reason, if you, if you make the lease binding upon execution, but you push the commencement date out to after, after the, at, at, to the delivery date, the tenant doesn't have to start paying rent on the P&L until the lease commences. So you have that whole period of time. So if you have the, a lot of landlords will want the lease to commence on the date you sign it, right? And that means the tenant has to start paying rent on the P&L before they start having beneficial occupancy. So what you can do is you can take the commencement date, push it out to beneficial occupancy, um, have, have the period of time between commencement and the binding execution of the lease be kind of a pre-lease period. The landlord still gets the lease binding, but the tenant doesn't have to stop paying rent in the P&L until, until it commences. So from a P&L perspective, it's a brilliant idea as well. I agree. And it's, Adam, what you're doing is sort of supercharged. And at a more basic level, I agree entirely. The, 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 the most common mistake that a tenant will make when negotiating a lease is not getting enough tenant improvement dollars and having a lease commence before they're actually able to, you know, having to pay rent for a space that you're not able to occupy. It happens all the time. So the idea that we instead in the circumstance where it's a landlord build, they're responsible for delivery. We push that delivery and completion risk to the landlord and that drives the commencement of rent. That on, it, on, its, on itself is something that a lot of tenants miss. Like let's not pay rent for buildings we can't use until they're ready. Well, another thing to think about if we're talking about delayed delivery, commencement, et cetera, um, keep in mind too under GAP, uh, under the new accounting procedures of ASC 842, um, amortization and the term starts on possession. And so I had a client that was taking down a building and signed, we were aiming to sign a lease in December. They weren't going to start their construction until the following fall. Um, even though the building was gonna be vacated long before fall of the following year. And so we negotiated that possession wouldn't even occur until close to the end of summer. Because as soon as we take possession, even though we haven't moved in, the lease hasn't commenced. The TIs haven't been built. Um, upon possession, um, for accounting purposes, that's when the lease term and the amortization starts, if you're GAP. Um, so another thing to be thinking about as well, if, if I had not caught that and they had taken possession, say, January, that lease term and the amortization would have started nine months before they even started construction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they truly don't even have to take possession. It's just the lease just has to say the possession date is... X Correct. date, right? Correct. Yep. So it, the the uh, 
the value there is is educating owners that the the lease can be binding before we take possession. Like exactly. you can start spending money, it's binding when we execute it. But but from an accounting perspective, we're not going to take possession for eighteen months. We did a similar deal um, as well, and and it it takes some work to get there, and it ha- you have to understand it like you do, Owen, to be able to explain it to an owner because they just think if you don't have possession. That means you don't have a binding lease. That's their first defense. And it's like, no, take a step back. Let me explain this to you. Talk to your attorneys. But this all works for everybody. And it's a simple change. And it really doesn't change anything to do with the underlying lease. The deal could be the same deal. It's just how you frame it up in the lease. Yeah. And I, I think that more and more um, accountants and you know, auditing firms are familiar with the ASC 842 right now. But this happened... Uh, two years ago, and even their auditors thought it wasn't the, wasn't the case. And I'm not a CPA. I didn't graduate with a degree in accounting, but I know enough about lease accounting that I was like, no, I'm pretty sure this is true. And it indeed was. So um, anyway, something to think about in, ad- in addition to what Tucker was talking about. So another thing to talk about uh, on this subject of understanding delivery dates, gap accounting, all that, um, one, of the, one of the challenges in negotiating um, like a tenant build, right, is there are instances where landlords truly don't understand how long it takes to build space. And they'll be like, oh, you can build that space in six months. No big deal. And maybe you could build it in six months if you had already done your construction drawings and had a permitted hand and the space has already been demoed and you're ready to start construction, like depending on all a whole host of factors. What are you building? What's the scope? On and on and on. Well, one of the things that I've resorted to when you have an unreasonable landlord that says, we've never given more than 180 days for construction ever, is you go to them and you get them to do some sort of landlord work before they turn over the space. So I just did this dealing with a really silly, frustrating to deal with landlord, non-institutional, happens to own the only building that our client wants for a whole host of strategic reasons, extremely difficult to deal with. And I hate doing things like this because they're so pointless, but when you just are not dealing with a rational party on the other side, sometimes you have to do irrational things. So we negotiate 180 days, the space is ready for delivery immediately. Um, and we don't wanna start spending money on design fees until after we have a signed lease. And it will end up taking us about a year from a signed lease to move into a space. We went to the landlord and manufactured uh, a host of items we need them to fix as landlord work that we know will require a permit. And now it's going to take them four months to do the work before they can start our 180 day clock. And it's so silly. Like I'm almost embarrassed to be admitting this on this podcast, but when you're dealing with a landlord that is so out of touch and just doesn't understand how these things work, sometimes you have to play their own game and force this hot potato of four months of work on them. So you have an extra four months to design and permit before your 180 day which isn't enough clock starts to do construction in this particular case. Yeah. We, we like to call it enhanced base building delivery. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you it can be things as simple as distribution of HVAC, T-bar ceilings, uh, sprinkler systems, carpet tiles, of course, the demo piece, right? Get the space demo per your demo plan. Oh, we're, we're still working on our plans. We got to get you the demo plan. Uh, but it's a great point. It's a way to, it's a, and it's also a way to align the landlord with the realities of the timelines that are in place in the marketplace. Because, you know, your point that landlords are their brokers, you know, they, is it, is it that they're over promising and under delivering on these timelines or do they actually not know? I think it's more of the former, like they just say it's take six months, but 
everybody knows it doesn't take six months if you don't live under a rock, right? It's it just it's just a negotiation tactic to think that you could deliver space in the timelines that many landlord brokers are, are conveying or landlords in general. Well, and think about all, you know, for those of our listeners, right? Like you've, you've negotiated leases for office or industrial or whatever it might be, life science. Ask, think back to those transactions and ask how many times or look back and think about how many times you negotiated the base building delivery. So less the, the games and the gamemanship that Tucker did, which was fantastic to get what he ultimately needed for his client. You can spend a fortune on just warming the space up to start your construction. And I've had cases where, no joke, like we were given a tremendous TI allowance on paper. It looked fantastic. And if you were just trying to get a deal done, you probably would think, oh, this is a pile of money. We're good. Let's just go and get the lease signed. Where, in fact, inheriting the space, knowing that we're going to have a demo, right? The landlord is leasing it to it, leasing us the space in an as-is, where-is condition. Just the demo alone and getting rid of all the unneeded plumbing, electrical, HVAC, and turning over to a cold shell and even warming up the cold shell to start construction was going to be over $35 a square foot. And so can you imagine signing a lease where you think you're getting this massive TI allowance only to find out that a third of it is going just to prepare the space so you can start your construction? And I think that's something that gets so often overlooked and I wouldn't consider that to be creative deal making necessarily. But I just, when I heard base building delivery, I just want to bring that up because I've had cases where literally just to warm the space up to start our construction is going to cost $30, $40 a square foot. And that is money that absolutely should be spent by the landlord, not you and your tenant and, your, and their improvement allowance that you negotiated. Okay, closing the loop on this subject. So enhanced base building deliveries are great for saving money on tenant improvements, great for pushing out the possession date so you can uh, start your you know gap accounting payment of rent later. That's also great for buying additional time. Uh, if you're not a, you know, a gap uh, company or you don't care about gap accounting uh, because you're private company that doesn't have investors or isn't planning to go public or anything like that. In those types of circumstances, it can be really helpful at getting you additional time to do your design and uh, permitting before you actually get possession of the space and do construction. Okay, another topic that I really want to make sure we cover is this idea of signing leases with single purpose entities. This was uh, and has been very uh, popular through turbulent economic times where landlords have less leverage. This is definitely one of those times. Um, think about a large law firm that won't provide financials, that is structured as a partnership that says, you know, hey, we want to sign a lease with a single purpose entity created just to hold, um, you know, hold the lease asset and, and that's it. Um, and then uh, thereafter, you might securitize that lease with a letter of credit. This is a type of deal structure that we will see come back over the next couple of years as landlords are desperate to get tenants in their building. And when a lease like this is structured, it gives you um, essentially a perpetual right to terminate whenever you want. If you can sign a 10-year lease with a letter of credit that's equal to the, a portion of the tenant approval allowance and free rent that you would essentially be walking away from if you terminate, if you can negotiate that and then have the letter of credit burned down over time, then you could be in a position two, three years from now, five years from now, where you're paying an above market rent and the cost to walk away by just forfeiting the letter of credit is less than um, the cost that uh, is is priced at a level where it would make sense to just eat that cost in exchange for signing a new lease. I think we're going to see a lot more of these over the next co uh, couple of years. So it's, it's an interesting 
topic. I mean, that's, I think we're going to see with the desperate landlords, I think we're going to see landlords um, trying to mitigate their risk a lot. We're going to see landlords, like, like I think we're going to see, we want to see, you see landlords start posting letters of credit for TI allowances. You want to see landlords start, um, you know, having really strong, real strong understanding of the debt structures within buildings. So what is your loan to value? Who are your lenders? Um, having having lenders at the table to sign long-term leases to make sure, uh, you know, the deal is going to get done and it doesn't get, it doesn't get um, thrown off course at the end when everyone's committed time, energy and resources to do it. I think, you know, I think being, having tough conversations with owners over the next couple of years is going to be really important around how we are successful and how our clients are successful because you can get down the road with, with the landlord and you realize that they don't have, they're trying to string it all together. They don't have the financial strength to be able to put the deal together. And you don't want to find that out at the end. You want to find that out early. So I don't know how creative that is, but it's, it's good brokerage. We're entering a market again where we want to start reintroducing the right of offset. If the landlord doesn't spend the money, we can uh, we can spend it and take it out of the rent wheel. I want to make sure that we also have time to talk about expansion options. I know all of us have really unique expansion flexibility that we've created for different companies that we've worked with over the years. Um, I have a story that I'd love to start out with here, but would love to hear your stories too. Probably the most creative expansion option that I've ever negotiated in my career actually involved uh, a single tenant building um, of quite some size and a, a multi-tenant office campus immediately adjacent, like a different property, but it's the, the next property over. And we went to this property owner and we negotiated a lease for about 5,000 square feet in the project. Put in perspective, this company had a couple hundred thousand square feet that we were negotiating immediately adjacent on the next parcel. And we went to that landlord and we said, we will pay you a above market rent in exchange for you giving us above market rights of first refusal on every single space in your in your building in this multi-tenant campus that was um, well in excess of 100,000 square feet. We negotiated a whole LOI. Then we went to the owner of the couple hundred thousand square foot building immediately adjacent and said, the only way we'll do your deal is if you pay for this lease and you have the ability to sublease it if you want, but you can't do anything that interferes with our rights to expand. And that allowed us to get expansion rights on a building that we weren't paying for, that we sort of leased for no other purpose than to have rights on much larger spaces that we knew were rolling over over time in that project. Um, probably the most ex most creative, uh, unusual expansion rights that I've ever negotiated. I'm curious if you all have any other kind of unique stories around how to create flexibility for your clients. I think that's great. I think and someone else can jump in, but I think, I think the, the, the lesson for me and that Tucker is you don't know. A lot of times people will, will tell you that the answer is no, before you ask the question, go ask the question, tell And if you have the right client, you can get to yes. It's probably wasn't what you originally asked for. There's some negotiation there, obviously, but, uh, and I've never, I've never thought through being able to do that. So that's great. Thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> I like it. It's, uh, I mean, the expansion options to me, the creativity and expansion options is really understanding your client and being able to ask for something, um, the standard option to protect the unknowns, but then to be able to align their growth, just like you were talking about, 
if you really understand your clients and you get to know what their business is and understand how how, how the, the cycles of their business work, align what their needs are, just the blanket expansion, but then start to really understand what their needs are and, and align those with options and tell a story to the marketplace that's believable, that's real. And you'll be able to you'll be able to acquire options because landlords like growing companies and they want to help. But what what where I see a breakdown a lot is if you don't have enough information and you just ask for the world without any support behind it, um, and then you just get shot down because it, it becomes it, it's only paper thin. If you actually have the story, you know what the client wants, and you're able to, to convey it in a way that that it becomes critical to the success of the company. You'll get to you'll get to yes a lot more um, often than you would if you were just kind of pushing paper back and forth. So something that strikes me just as Brian's talking through um, that is that in particular for West Coast based companies, the types of option rights that exist in New York, exist in Boston, in DC, a lot of these East Coast cities that generally have significantly larger tenants than say like San Diego, Orange County, LA, like you might have a high rise office tenant in New York that occupies 400,000 square feet in a million square foot building. There's just a lot less of that in Southern California and in Seattle and, and situations like that. There are options that are pretty common in some of these major East Coast hubs where you may negotiate a fixed right expansion um, capability where you may say, if at any point in the first three years of the lease, I have the ability to take up to five additional floors and the floors will be within this block of space in the building. And I have the right to take those floors at the exact same economics that I took my initial premises for. Those types of options are very uncommon in Southern California. Um, yet there's, there's, there's no reason you can't ask for them. There's no reason that you can't secure them. And that's a much better alternative for a growing company versus leasing those spaces and either hoping you find a subtenant or hoping you end up growing into them. Um, and in a softer market like what we're seeing today, it's going to be much easier to get those regardless of geography. Oh, and I, it looks like you've got something you want to add. Well, yeah, it's, you know, we're in what is arguably one of the best times to be a tenant I've seen in 18 years of doing this business and serving the needs of tenants. And to think of a company, worst case, it's just taking more space you need. And I see it happening all the time. I saw it happen during the pandemic, especially with life science companies, where they just took way too much space for the fear of not being able to have a path for expansion. Second worst scenario, and I know this happens all the time because I see it all the time, is in a market like this, not capturing the economics that you negotiate for the initial takedown. So what I mean by that is that you have a right of refusal or even option or some sort of expansion, right? There's a lot of them where it's going to be subject to market or what other some, some other tenant might be willing to pay. And what if the market turns around? And all of a sudden, the concessions we're getting today for our clients are a fraction of or the, recession, the concessions we're getting for um, tenants five years from now are a fraction of what we are able to achieve today. And so one of the things you can do on these rights is, let's say you're getting a $150 tenant improvement allowance, okay, for an office build or something. Well, why, why not suggest that that $150 is multiplied by a fraction, the numerator being the years left in your lease and the denominator being the total years of the lease. And that assures you're getting a proportionate share of that initial offering, knowing that it can't be the same because maybe you're exercising this option in your five to 10 year lease. Um, but apply that across the board to free rent, apply that to tenant improvement allowance, 
there's ways to structure what the, the rent might be. But I see so often people sign these expansion options with just, hey, it's at fair market or it's at whatever someone else is willing to pay. Well, I don't want to trust the work of some other broker um, that will potentially have a grave impact on what my clients ends up paying for their expansion right. And so it's now more than ever incumbent upon us to make sure that less negotiating these, these fantastic terms for what our clients are taking down today, allowing to make sure that we're preserving the effects of this market and the expansion options that we negotiate that maybe they'll likely exercise. Yeah, I think just real quick, Tucker, your point, and I think it's probably a difference between East Coast, West Coast, but your your story around fixed options in the short term in a larger building, right? One of the other concepts that's, that is a little more creative is not to be able to match your deal, but it's a most favored nations option that matches the best deal in the building that's done from the time you do your deal. And in a declining market, you could capture some real savings by by picking up, even though you have your existing deals done, you're picking up the delta between that deal and the next couple of deals that are done uh, in the building. So those are those are another another way to look at that as well. Yeah, I don't know about you, but Owen, John, and I, uh, we always negotiate the best deals in the building. So that option's not really important to our clients. <laughs> Got me. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I have another topic that I, I want to jump into. This is a really quick hit um, related to parking. So... This is a, a COVID phenomenon, but even before COVID, there there was uh, a certain type of company that might have a really high number of people that need parking, but a very low utilization rate. Think about a residential brokerage company where people almost never come in. They might have 10,000 feet, but 500 people that work at the company. Only time everyone's there is for an all hands meeting. People aren't at desks. They're you know standing up in a you know central room, you know standing next to people's cubes to hear you know some sales talk or something like that. We've had a lot of success negotiating parking structures where instead of paying based off of a monthly parking rate based on the number of stalls that um, you have in an aggregate, but instead you pay a monthly price um, and the, the stalls are based on your average daily usage of stalls during the month. Um, almost all of the buildings have the technology to do this. And if they don't, they probably should upgrade their parking technology you can do this type of parking structure for a company that might have, you know, 500 people, but on any given day, on average, they only have 66 cars in their garage at one time. And you've now just reduced their parking cost by about 90%. So um, these deals are happening. It's available. You should be at least exploring it. Of course, the landlord could say no, but far more often the landlord will say yes. Can you do the same thing for office, office occupancy? <laughs> so you pay on an average occupancy per month? While we're on the subject of parking, I had a transaction where client needed so much parking that it couldn't be accommodated in the building, but they love the building and they wanted to figure out a way to make it work. So the deal was, well, we're going to have to go find some more parking. Well, to, in order to satisfy their parking demands, it wasn't like we could just be across the street because this was in a downtown location. So we secured a parking lot about a mile and a half south of the city uh, where we pre-committed to leasing so many stalls you know, basically on a seven day a week schedule. And that was going to come out an added expense. But then the question became, well, how are we going to get these people from this parking lot south of the city back into downtown? And we said to the landlord, like, hey, we're paying for the parking, but if you're our partner here, you need to help us find a way to get people back into town. And so the landlord offered to um, run a shuttle for us uh, on a limited schedule. It wasn't a 24 hour shuttle. Um, the caveat being that they could also use a shuttle to run 
to service other tenants in the building should they have a similar need someday, which was fine with us because if the shuttle's running more places, that actually could be accretive to what we were trying to achieve. Um, but another example of like solving for parking where, yeah, it wasn't on, all on site. We had to put a bunch of people off site, but having a landlord partner with us and committing to running a shuttle, which my client wanted nothing to do with. Yeah, you know, this also makes me think of one of my pet peeves is where a landlord, you know, the, the proposal is written such a way where we are committing to lease X number of parking spaces at landlord's prevailing rate. Like, wait a minute. So now I have to rent it from you regardless of what you charge, as opposed to getting to choose. Suppose I, 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 I downsize. I have half the number of employees. I can't reduce the number of parking spaces. So the idea of a fixed number of parking spaces at landlord's prevailing rate is a real trap. So I, I have a few specific questions that I want to ask um, to, to some of my co-hosts here. Before I do that, I have a couple of quick hits that are not necessarily creative, but are things that are good brokerage and might not be thought of on every transaction. So first of all, you can almost always negotiate the ability to convert your free rent to additional TI allowance dollar for dollar. If you don't do this up front, then sometimes landlords will try and charge you some interest factor for funding the money day one instead of maybe in like month six or month 12 or something. But most landlords will agree to this upfront because it's more money going into their building. The second thing is that if you don't have a 100% finalized pricing for a transaction, negotiating the ability to amortize in additional tenant improvement allowance or also amortize out additional tenant improvement allowance is super valuable. You don't want to be in a position where you don't have enough TI dollars, but you also don't want to be in a position where you have too much and you're searching for ways to use it. And in exchange for that extra 10 bucks a foot of TI allowance that you aren't using, you've ended up paying, um, you know, 10, 15 cents square as per square foot more per month in rent over a 10 year period or something. Um, if you're a large tenant, negotiating the ability to self-perform your own property management, whether it be security, janitorial, building engineering, repairs, maintenance, anything like that is super important. And it's also additional leverage if you're unhappy with how the landlord is performing in their property management duties. Almost no landlords will say no to allowing you to do that. Um, if you have a larger than market security deposit or letter of credit, negotiate a burn down. Almost every landlord will allow you to burn down, even if you don't have good credit, these financial securitization instruments over time. You should have a combination of passive burn downs over you know, years or years of, of the lease, but you should also have performance-based metrics. Say that you're a fast-growing uh, venture-backed company. Well, you might have a threshold that says if you raise X dollars at a certain valuation that the letter of credit is reduced. You should add these things in. They're really easy to secure. The other thing is that, and this is in particular for large users leasing uh, buildings that could otherwise be multi-tenanted, and instead you're taking them as a single tenant, you should always make sure that you're capturing all of the value that the landlord does now not have to deal with as a result of it being a single tenant building. This would be furniture and common areas, wayfinding, site signage, things like that. These are costs that they would otherwise be incurring. You can remind them of that. You could even say, send me what your common area furniture budget was, that should be this client's money. Um, and then also in the form of downtime. I mean, it's a great way to negotiate a phase into a building is saying, we're taking the entire building day one. There's no way you would find that many uh, companies in a multi-tenant scenario that quickly. So anyways, these are all just good brokerage. Um, some of these are probably fairly obvious to um, every, everyone listening. If you're an experienced director of real estate, imagine some of those are kind of duh, but um, important to ask for those. So I want to go next to Owen. 
And I want Owen to specifically talk about negotiating roof rights and how insanely important these things are going to become as more landlords put solar on the roofs, um, as, as well as other things on the roof. If you don't have these solar rights, then you're potentially in a position where you have no seat or if you don't have these roof rights, you're potentially in a position where you have absolutely no right to negotiate with the landlord. And if you do have them, you could create insane value for yourself. So Tucker, yeah, I mean, roof rights are really, really important um, because there are states throughout the nation where power costs are really high and thus it can make uh, installing solar um, a, a win-win for potentially, potentially the landlord and the tenant. Um, I think what you'll start to see over the course of the next, you know, let's call it five to 10 years is a lot more landlords in states like California and Massachusetts where power costs are really high moving towards solar. Um, the Biden administration as part of their Inflationary Reduction Act extended solar credits um, and so none of these, the landlord have the opportunity to lease their roof to a third party provider who would install the solar, but they also get tax incentives from the federal government by installing solar in their buildings. And so typically what happens, like, let's say you're a tenant that doesn't have exclusive roof rights to your asset, to your, to your building rather. And you're in, in some cases, you might be the only tenant landlords have the right to lease their roof to a third party. And usually these leases, these roof leases go for 25, 35, or even potentially 50 years. Um, the third party then comes in and installs solar panels on the roof, um, sells solar power back to the tenant, and then whatever the tenant needs in addition is supplemented by power from the grid. Landlord benefits from increased NOI, net operating income, for their building being provided by the tenant that's leasing the roof who installed the solar panels, and the tenant shares none of the upside. Um, now, the landlord might sell it as like, hey, you're buying green power, which of course I'm all for the environment and yeah, we have to be mindful of um, where we get our power and how it's sourced. But it doesn't seem fair to me to be a single tenant in the building, have a landlord install power, or sorry, have the landlord have a third party install solar and potentially uh, benefit from zero upside. Landlord gets the ESG benefits, um, you don't. Um, landlord gets increased asset value, you don't. Um, landlord has zero capital costs because the solar provider installed all the solar at their at their expense. Um, and there's, again, just no upside to you, the tenant. So again, not suggesting solar is a bad idea, but just be very, very mindful of that, especially if you're in a state that is conducive to installing solar. And that's those are those states that uh, power costs are very, very high. And so just to give you an idea for those of listeners, listeners, what states those might be, think about it if you're in California, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, New York, Massachusetts, Maine, and Maryland. Full disclosure, I'm actually an investor in one of those companies. Uh, and so the good news is, great. Like, the, let's see more solar on more of these large rooftops. How many times do you fly into a, a, a city and all the industrial buildings around the airport, you look down on the all these big, naked, beautiful rooftops. I mean, they should all have solar on them, right? And they're all going to in the future. That's just inevitable. This is where we're headed. Um, where it hasn't been deployed yet is in these leased buildings where the landlord owns a rooftop, but the tenant's paying the electric bill. So yes, over time, landlords and tenants are going to come together in the places where it's saving money to deploy solar. And it's a negotiation about how much of that solar savings is shared with the tenant and how much is captured by the landlord as increasing NOI. This is great. This is exactly what we're here to do is to bring landlords and tenants together. Let's do more of that. And if you can protect your roof rights in the lease, great. It also has to do with roof responsibility, you know, age of the roof, lease term, all these things come into play when you're talking about working together to put solar on the roof. I think the key here from Owen is that 
you have to negotiate roof rights if you want a seat at the table to be able to negotiate. This is like, if you don't have roof rights, you don't have the ability to negotiate whatsoever. And this is just going to happen. If you do have rights, then you can go proactively to the landlord and say, hey, we control the roof. We understand that, um, you know, a lot of these leases, you can secure the right to install your own solar panels, right? But you could go to them and say, we'd like to partner with you on an, the installation of solar panels. We'd like to split the increased net operating income that you get to the building for the duration of our lease term and any option periods. And thereafter, it could be 100% yours. Um, so anyways, let's go to Brian. I, it looks like you had a comment on this too. Yeah, just two things. If you don't control it, you are, you are at the mercy of the landlord and what they think is the best for you in the building. So what it does give you, and I've run into this with clients, is we're negotiating a lease. It increases the risk they have, especially in specialty manufacturing or any, any type of um, uh, environment that they want to keep, they want to keep confidential. It, you have third parties showing up on the property to inspect them, maintain them. You have employee concerns because you have introducing another vendor to the property. What is the frequency they can go? Do they have access to the building or is it just the roof? All this complexities that if you if you put the rights in the lease early on before you sign it, partner with the landlord, it doesn't mean you can't get the benefits, but it's that partnership that is the real key. Because if you don't, you could you could be in a position where you're left outside of the room when they're trying to figure these out you know, in, in, across, because it's going to come, right? It's going to come and, and you want to see it at the table. And I, I will add, don't just think about the roof. I did a transaction in Texas where they have covered parking, not, not structured parking. I'm talking like carport type parking uh, to shield cars from the brutal sun or hailstorms that are very prevalent in the south central part of the United States in the summer. Landlords can install solar on those things as well. So again, Solar's great. Just make sure if you're a tenant of size, uh, you're participating in the upside that the landlord's going to realize. One of the things that I wanted to ask Brian to talk about, because I know he has a lot of experience with them, is this idea of equity leases or, or shared participation in the equity stack uh, based on the value you bring to the transaction as a tenant. Yeah, the, yeah Tucker, this, this market is creating a lot of opportunities uh, for 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 large users who are doing single, likely single tenant or uh, new construction, kicking off a, a new construction project to participate. And typically, um, you know, you, you're going to get no is your initial answer because there's already a capital stack in place for these developments. Or if it's an existing building, there's already a capital stack in place that's that's predicting an exit. Well, in a market where you're bringing all the value, you can you can push the issue and you will be able to create some sort of a participation in the exit. It doesn't mean it's going to be a dollar one of profitability. It could be at some tranches. But the, the where I've been successful in doing it is being able to give the landlord some sort of a reasonable return based upon your your uh, potential lease. And then and then you look at a sharing above that return, right? So you have to do you do the work up front to understand the value of the asset without you, the value of the asset with you, or the new asset with you, give the landlord a reasonable return on that, and anything over that, that you will start sharing uh, on a sliding scale based upon a value that will appreciate depending upon where the you know where the, the transaction ultimately ends. And it what it does is it 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 
creates an opportunity for your client to benefit. They could either take the cash and invest it back into the building. They could take take the, the money and re, and pay down rent. Um, there's all different ways that you can structure it. But what it does is it aligns you and the landlord to realize that all of the value of the transaction is coming from your client and, and the tenancy of that of that company. Let me take a shot at a version of this. So I've done this a few times. Um, and the way I characterize it is as follows. It's like, I wonder if you all have seen this. If you're going to sign a lease on a, say, a 100,000 foot building, it's sitting there empty today. Uh, the minute we sign a lease on that building, we've dramatically increased the value of that property. I've had various times through my career where some investor maybe comes to me and says, hey, by the way, before you do that, if you've got a deal like that where the building's for lease or for sale and you're about to lease it, bring it to me instead. Let me buy it and then you can lease it for me because they want to capture that value you're creating when you sign the lease. Okay, I've, I've never actually done that. I've never slipped an investor upstream of my tenant to capture that value, but it points to the value that we are able to capture for the tenant in the same way. Just recognize that the minute we sign the lease, we're taking the time vacancy, the risk, all off the table for the landlord, and now it's a leased asset. So see the value and capture the value. So one of the ways to capture the value very directly and clearly uh, as, a, as a company is to just get the property in escrow yourself. And if you can secure the property in escrow on a 90 day period or you know some period that's long enough to do due diligence and also find somebody to purchase the property, then you never actually have to close. I mean, the vast majority of commercial purchase and sale agreements have the ability to assign the, the PSA to anyone that you'd like. Um, you know, typically companies are buying it with you know, insert company name, you know, LLC for this property type of deal or assignee. So you might be able to assign the purchase contract to a developer or a landlord that you know, and you've run a competitive bid process to provide the most compelling terms for yourself. Um, oh, and it looks like you've got something to add to. You know, we've done this a, a bunch of times. I work with a private equity firm, um, and there's been a few times where they've been evaluating the acquisition of a specific company. Um, where that company has a, a very short-term lease left in place. And we've, I've said to the private equity firm, like, hey, if we want to, uh, why don't we, if you're, if you're looking for a long-term place, it's a manufacturing company that needs to be in space. It's highly specialized. They're going to end up signing this, you know, 15 to 20 year lease anyway. Let's go out and buy a piece of real estate, put a long-term lease on it and, and do a sale immediately thereafter. And in two instances, we've closed simultaneously on signing the lease and selling the building and my client benefited in the arbitrage and made millions of dollars literally in a single day. Um, and so that happens um, often. And if people aren't thinking about that, you're just giving someone else the upside. Yeah, I mean, I've done it similar, but it's back to what John was saying. What We've partnered ahead of time with landlords that we believe are good operators, they're long-term owners, to work with us, understand with them, understand the marketplace, have them approach owners of vacant buildings or buildings or land, have them tie it up, have a pre-negotiated or in the process of negotiating a lease for the building so they know what they can pay for it, but it's vacant, so it's significantly less. So you get the a lower rent. So instead of looking at it as sharing the upside, for for many of the corporate clients that I've worked with, we just we're reducing the rent expense because they're buying the building at such a lower number than they would um, or than we would if we tied it up and then flipped it to a developer. So it all depends on what they're looking for. If you're looking for upside and, and return on the investment, there's one way to look at it. If you're looking at the lowest cost on the P&L for a corporate user, 
you may like this this particular one we were going to take um and it kind of died down because we, at the time there wasn't enough assets to, to acquire but we were going to take it and do it in multiple cities because we had kind of a set lease we had a set design of what we wanted out of it and they were going to go do it and we're going to replicate it in multiple cities as a way to grow really fast with a quality owner that we knew would be a good operator long term which would deliver a good product to our our clients which are the employees that are going to be at that building so it would have been a win-win if you're a tenant right now and you're out looking for space let's say it's office particularly where values are really depressed um it would be smart to be looking at buildings where let's say you're going to occupy a third or half of the building or maybe even more but recognizing that it's going to be a multi-tenanted building you don't want to own it because you don't want the headache of having to run a commercial office building you should be talking to developers that might be willing to take it down um, and by doing so, being a, a half of the NOI or, or more in some cases, you have an opportunity to have a carried equity position in that asset should they lease up the final 50% sell it. Or for that matter, if you've got cash on hand and want to be an investor alongside them, that's another thing we've done in the past. So be opportunistic, ask these questions. Um, sometimes they're not so obvious, but with some creative thinking and deal making, uh, the opportunities and the returns can be pretty tremendous. Okay, we're coming to the close of the episode. We're going to do a quick lightning round. I want to hear from each of you, and then I'll also share something on my end. What is the most unique, interesting, or thing you're most proud of? Any of those topics that you've negotiated in a lease at some point in your career? Let's start with Brian. Yeah, thanks, Tucker. So, real quick, I had a client that was trying to determine how they wanted to how they wanted to put an asset on their books. What they were putting a a large investment into the building once they took it down. So we actually negotiated a purchase of the asset and a simultaneous lease of the asset and had the right to determine if we're going to buy it and take out the developer or lease it from the developer long term, all the way up to the point of effectively delivery of the building, um, which was pretty cool. Uh, Tucker, earlier you were talking about amortizing TIs into a uh, lease rate. And if you've ever thought about it, it's a horrible deal for the tenant. It's like the gift to the landlord that just keeps on giving because not only does that loan payment, it's effectively a loan payment. The landlord's acting like a bank loaning you the TI money, you're paying it back with interest over the term of the lease, but it never goes away because the rent is higher and it's gonna to continue to be higher based on this amortized TI cost. What's more, they're including it as a additional rent, which goes into base rent, which is now subject to the cost of living adjustment. So you thought you were getting it amortized at 8%, no, 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 it's much more because it's now subject to an annual escalation on, uh, with the base rent as well. So I did this once. I don't think I, I don't know if this is ever going to be able to be done again. We treated the TI as, uh, amortization as a loan. And at the end of the lease term, it went away. And the renewal language was structured in such a way that it would not give any value to the previously spent tenant improvement allowance. That loan actually went away. Mine happens to be similar to my earlier comment where I had a client that was out looking for space. Um, we knew what we were looking for, and one of the buildings that we were looking at that was for lease was 100% um, vacant. And landlord was eager to lease us a space, but I said no, 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 thanks. We tried to, we, but we also didn't want to buy it. But I said to my client, "Gosh, if I could find somebody, I know plenty of landlords that would do this, that could come in, make an offer to buy this otherwise vacant building, knowing they had you in tow, um, and knowing that they're willing to give you a portion of equity should they turn around and flip it." which they ended up doing three years later. Um, I think this could be a win-win. Um, 
So long story short, I just told you what happened. They leased the building, had a new landlord that came in and bought it. The seller didn't know that the buyer had this my client in tow. We got a carried equity position in the asset, and three years later, it sold, and they made a nice return. Um, and so it was found money um, on top of getting a great lease term and having a great landlord. So um, that those aren't easy, but they are out there, especially today when values are so depressed. Okay, I actually am going to cheat and and do too. So negotiating the right to add a helipad to a building. That makes me feel good. Is that so you uh, could visit when you yeah, come in? On yeah, you, we all know that that's my preferred means of travel. So um, yeah, that's that's a requirement. But no, it, landlord didn't want to. We said we need the helipad. Uh, we negotiated the right to add it. I've now done this on, on several different transactions, which gives you the idea of, uh, you know, some of the, you, you know, interesting, fun people that uh, I've, I'm lucky enough to work with. Then the other thing that I'm, I'm really proud of um, beyond just, you know, driving around town and seeing building top signs of companies you represent, which is one of the coolest parts of working in this industry, is actually getting streets renamed for your large clients. So I've only had that happen uh, maybe a half dozen or so times, hopefully another you know, half dozen or so in the coming years. But uh, yeah, when you can rename a street after your client, that's pretty special. And for any large company bringing a lot of jobs to an area, it's very doable and might be something that uh, you're not immediately thinking of, but you should be, because it's very cool to have a street named after your company. Or Tucker Court. Yeah. yeah. Can I, Tucker, can I ask you a question? Because this is very LA and these are great stories. It is, do you have to be specific if the helipad is for manned vehicles versus autonomous vehicles or helicopters, or is it just blanket helicopters on the pad? Yeah, uh, it's just blanket helicopters. You don't want to limit yourself to just autonomous helicopters. Come on. Uh, For for another episode, I have a hilarious story of a huge real estate project where the uh, client insisted on meeting the executive of the real estate owner in person to finish the transaction. And all of us, like if, if you're not, you know, deeply involved in real estate, that might sound like, of course, like I'm going to sign a, you know, $50 million agreement. I want to know the person on the other side. The issue is the people on the other side of these deals are, you know, $10 billion in assets, asset management firms, and the CEO sits in New York and you might be doing a transaction in LA. It's really, really rare that you actually meet these people and shake their hand in person. Um, so this client said, I won't sign the lease unless the head of this company flies out and meets me. And in the meeting, he goes out and says, by the way, I don't want to sign this lease until we have the ability to have a Chinook helicopter <laughs> land on the parking garage. I'm, I'm not kidding. This deal flashed before my eyes. I wasn't sure if it was going to happen. And after legitimately like a 15 minute discussion of, of getting, you know, not in the lease, but promises that if this, this individual could get it approved by the, you know, local jurisdiction, which was an impossibility of that ever happening, that he would go to bat and do everything he could to get it added for him and sign the lease a few minutes later. We will wrap up with that. I hope that our listeners learned something and that you enjoyed was probably one of the more technical episodes that we've released so far. Um, as a reminder, you can email us at podcast at the CREinsider.com. Uh, we love hearing from you. Hopefully our uh, one self-described fan who did reach out to us after last episode. Hopefully we hear from you again. Uh, we love nice compliments. We also love 
uh, suggestions around which topics to cover. So with that, we will see you next time. And thanks again for listening.